Cradleine Network. the 21st episode of Big Mag One. My name is Conrad, alongside my friend Eli, and this is the podcast where two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering the magazine, Volume 2, Issues 9 and 10, cover dates August 22nd and September 5th, 1992. This episode, we're ending one set of stories and starting another as Judgment Day, Soul Sisters, and Devlin Waugh all conclude. Then we'll head back to the Isles, the British Isles, that is, for both Armitage and Calhab Justice. If you, if you want to read along with us, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case, Files 17, Devlin Waugh, Swimming in Blood, Anderson Asai, Files 2, and the Judge Dredd Magazines, Issues 287, 289, 290, and 352. All right. How you doing, Eli? I'm doing well. What a mouthful. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot. And I should say the elephant in the room, and especially with our the previous thing I released on this feed... Um, is that we are re-recording this episode from a time in the future. So we might be going over ground that we've tread before. We've seen in stories we know the outcomes for or anything else. And to that, I say, whatever. It's still fun. And honestly, it's been so long since we recorded the original episode that I feel like we're coming at this with all new eyes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think the fans should appreciate time travel shenanigans. Just think of it like that. Yeah. Come on. Have fun. <laughs> Enjoy the time travel and whatnot. Whatever. <laughs> and hey, speaking of time travel within time travel, Eli, like, I don't know, like a, a Back to the Future 2 where a guy in the future goes very far back into the past or something like that. Let's talk about Story 1, Judgment Day. Thrill 1, Judgment Day. Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Carlos Escara, Dean Ormston, Pete and Pete Doherty, letting robot Tom Frame. All right. It's our final time here in the Judgment Zone. We got to finish strong as we're finally getting to the big final fight with Subas. Oh, man. But first, we got to deal with these underbosses. Dread, Johnny Alpha, and uh, J Judge Inspector Sadu of Hondo Sit, as well as some Hondo Sit red shirts, are facing off against the deadly Charnax, these zombie dudes. And that's when things get goofy. Oh, man. Um, as uh, the Charnax then burst into a musical number, it's uh, I Want to Be Like You from the, junk from, the, uh, from the Jungle Book, but it's about murder. <laughs> I guess it's got a flair for the dramatic. Hoo, 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 I want to murder you. Hoo, hoo, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Ridiculous. It's such a anyway, strange Dredd's had choice. enough. <laughs> he doesn't care for this silliness. And so he and all the other judges start blasting chunks out of the Charnax as they continue to sing and kill these red shirts. Oh, God. I mean, they blow so, a hole through the mouth of one of them, and it's just like... They just yeah, keep yeah. coming and singing. Keeps coming. Keeps right. singing somehow. <laughs> Sabat has to laugh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Eli. No, I was saying it's, yeah, singing with the, no vocal cords. That's why, you know, it's magic. It's some high level necromancy going on. 
<laughs> yeah, plus, you know, just the just the magic of musical theater in general is helping us right. keeping them going. It's probably you know? their strength, Come really. On. Definitely. Yeah, that's where you get it from. <laughs> I like thinking so, that, that a portion of the study of necromancy is magical singing. Right. Well, I mean, we all know that that like skeletons like to dance and stuff. Oh, that's you true. Know. Play xylophones on their ribs. Yeah. People say they feel it in their bones. That it's like their Ooh. skeleton is actually trying to dance, but they just, you know. Yeah, there's that one <laughs> Betty Boop cartoon full of skeletons where they all sing Minnie the Moocher. That kind of, all, all that stuff, you know? It's right. classic. <laughs> it's a hoochie coocher. Um, Sabat has to laugh at his creations, basically laughing at his own jokes here. Um, as back in Hondo, we see a bunch of mega cities and population centers all being destroyed before the eyes of these sort of assembled judges. Magruder's had enough of this. If she's going to die, she's going to do it with a gun in her hand, by God. And the Hondo chief agrees. Whether Dredd succeeds or not, their place is in battle, and they head out to the Hondo city border. In Mega City 1, Hershey's blasting zombies, as we learn that basically everybody related to the Justice Department's also on the fighting lines, including cadets and stuff. Um... Someone asks her, what about all the citizens? There's no judges on the streets of Mega City One at all. And Hershey's like, well, the citizens, they're probably all looting. Get back to killing these zombies. Who cares? <laughs> Which is, is, is very similar to Dredd saying, who cares about the citizens of Mega City One during the Apocalypse War? Like, in the end, these judges have bigger things to worry about sometimes. Underground, the third Honda City redshirt is killed as Dredd tosses a grenade. One of the ch uh, Chardak smashes his, that uh, shotgun gun he's been using. But it seems like, honestly, it was a help because he switches to his lo uh, lawgiver and starts blasting uh, high X rounds, which actually do seem to blow up these Charnaks pretty effectively, especially when Johnny when Johnny Alpha fires a number four cartridge from his uh, fr fr from his gun as well. Big explosions. Yeah, big old explosions. The Karnaks are destroyed. And we see uh, Inspector Sadu, who still has survived but lost an arm in the fighting, cauterizes the wound to keep oh, going, which is God. pretty awesome. Very Rambo move here, definitely. Um, the car the Charnaks have all been destroyed, and Sabat's cape taunts him and says that he's probably in trouble now. But Sadu's got more tricks up his sleeve, as our heroes are suddenly swarmed by a giant mass of, like, skulls with hands coming out uh. of the bottom of the skull. Oh, it's creepy. Uh, not into it. <laughs> Weird skull monsters. Sadu, Alpha, and Dread are quickly overwhelmed and captured by the skull hands who sort of wrap them in like giant bones and then crowd surf them to Sabat's <laughs> lair while singing, again, a death version of uh, We're Off to See the Wizard. A lot of singing. Sabat's victory is close, and so he decides to take some time to think about the old days and remember his early life on Osborne's world. A planet where someone named Soppy Walters got beat up by a kid named Den, who looks like the UK version of Dennis the Menace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is like that red and black uh, striped shirt and kind of the spiky hair. That's, that's UK Dennis. In the US, he's blonde, of course, whatever. And I believe less, um, less menacing and dangerous. Less <laughs> menacing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the the menacing of U.S. Dennis the Menace is more existential than like actually beating you up or something. Um, 
On his way home after getting beaten up, Sapi is stopped by a nice lady named Baggy, who offers to help him with the bullies by teaching him the old ways of magic. She offers to just sort of teach him a spell to turn him blue for a week. But oh. Sagi has other ideas. Instead, he quickly kills Baggy by drowning her in her own cauldron and then reads from her library of black magic volumes. This kid's a real jerkwad. Yeah. Seriously. You try to do something nice. Uh, but I also think her motivation was a little weird. Hey, they won't pick on you if you turn yourself blue. Like, eh, they're probably still going to pick you. I don't think you understand social dynamics or how messed <laughs> no, I up I am as a kid. Turn, was, to, was to turn the bully blue, I think. Oh, I, I mean, like, okay. Oh, if they're worried about being turned blue, then they won't try to beat you up or whatever. I feel like nice. that is not a deterrent. Right. They'd still punch you harder, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> and they, you turn me just blue? Form, <laughs> then they just form a band, and then they just shave their heads, and then there's the blue man group. You're oh, giving them a career. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. They're anyway. doing interpretive. <laughs> <laughs> it's f- futuristic music. Oh, oh God. Oh, my God. He's, right. he, he starts their careers. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, but that that is the kind of gift that a witch would give you, you know, where you right. think you're getting even, Ooh. but you actually start the Blue Man group, you know? Like, <laughs> that's a pretty ironic punishment, you yeah. know? Lesson to witches, don't try to teach a kid how to get vengeance. It always ends yeah. up with you just being drowned in a cauldron. See, this yeah, is, you can't trust these this kids. This is why uh, most witches just want to cook children and eat them. Right. Yeah, exactly. they learn from this example. Right. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, Soggy makes like a voodoo doll or whatever and kills Den with it. And then raises his from the raises Den from the dead and keeps him like a weird zombie dog. It's kind of disturbing. Like if you want to really start to think about some implications into this character I, and I, what happens to him. I believe that this is not subtext. <laughs> I just want to say that like somewhere along the way, Den loses his pants, and that's and that's something you don't really think <laughs> oh, about too much. No. <laughs> Um, over the years, Sapi gets real into necromancy, eventually learning at the feet of Murd the Oppressor, who's an alien necromancer, who would later be killed by Judge Dredd in the course of the Judge Child quest. Just another sort of one last callback here <laughs> to um, events of Dredd's past. Sapi left Murd as Sabat, and the rest is history. At last, the judges and Strontium Dog have arrived at Sabat's lair, and he's not even sure what to do with him. Though we do see that Den is still with Sabat as a weird zombie pet suddenly. It's, it's which with I don't, eyes I, still. Still yeah, has eyes. Yeah. Those, are pro- those are probably don't. new eyes. I, I imagine he gets oh, still switched fair. out every so often. Mm. Gotta top up the embalming fluid. Yeah, yeah but uh, imagine how petty you have to be to you got bullied in middle school or whatever age he was and was like immortal servitude i will reanimate your corpse like that's way worse that p- punishment definitely doesn't fit the crime i think Man, what yeah. I know? well i mean i think that certainly i i i'd imagine over the years that his relationship with Dennis has has changed is all i'm trying to say uh, uh, okay right like where eventually the fact that he used to be a bully is more sort of like a fun story at the start of their longer love affair or whatever else. Right. You know? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to be a necromancer comes with the territory, I suppose. Exactly. So now we're on to our final time in the magazine for this story. This is Dean Orn. 
Ormston once more takes up his paintbrush. The two judges and Strontium Dog are tied to the ceiling by hanging spines. Oh, man. As Sabat pulls out a mystic orb and sends like lightning into our heroes. The death by as many cuts as possible. Tiny razor blades are like slicing them up as Sabat gloats. Dread, of course, is silent. He won't give Sabat the uh, satisfaction of crying out in pain. And so Sabat instead shows off his mystic lodestone. He kind of explains, you know, goes into full monologue mode here. Yeah, no big crystal. You feed it blood and it gives you power. Pretty solid. And I can always give it blood because, you know, I got all these zombies and stuff. Um, he keeps monologuing as Sadu has an idea. With his one arm, he pulls his nunchucks off his belt. And I thought these nunchucks were just for show. So I'm glad they're actually coming into the plot here. Um <laughs> He pulls off these nunchucks, and I guess one of the staves of the chucks has a collapsible sword in it? That's awesome. Yeah, man. Right. I wonder if it's in both of them, they could become sword chucks oh, if you really came down to it. Gotta God. be. Gotta be. It's a missed opportunity. Sword chucks, seem, sword chucks seem both awesome and a really great way to, like, cut your face off. <laughs> right. But... He uses the sword to cut himself free of the spines, take a slash at Sabat, and then Johnny Alpha swings it on the spines and kicks Sabat right <laughs> in the gut, as you do. <laughs> Sadu runs off, but Sabat gets him with his magic. He rips Aww. out Sadu's ribs, eyes, and heart, uh. each with a word. It's real awesome. Just says, like, ribs, and his ribs crack open. Eyes, and his eyes pop out of his head. Ooh, that's how, maybe how he gets him for Dennis. And then Ooh, <laughs> his heart comes flying out. Sadu has an iron will, though, so he can't be stopped. He stumbles to the lodestone and drives his sword through his own chest, pitting him to the stone. And because he's given it blood, he's still stolen its power. He says, release them, and dies. And suddenly, Dread is free and just starts punching the shit out of Sabat. Mm. Punches him to a bloody pulp. I love a guy who gets his heart ripped out and still is like, I got one more move. Like, oh, it did? I'm what? surprised he could still talk. Yeah, seriously. Right. Do you have one more move? Right. That I, I feel bad for Sabat. Like, just freaking, uh, that should have done it. I mean, it's when your freaking protagonist <laughs> yeah. just pull some, do some ass pull and like, haha, didn't see yeah. this coming. Wait, it should be physically possible. What are you, what are you talking about? Sadu's animated by all those samurai samurai movies and animes where some guy gets like cut in half, but doesn't know that they're cut in half. <laughs> right, right. And so like, like maybe like walks around, like goes home, gets a cup of coffee and stuff, and then suddenly <laughs> then falls into oh like God. four different pieces, you know? Like he was dead the whole time, <laughs> but he's able to like keep it going, you know, through through will, through force of will. <laughs> but you're right, this is cheap. It's not it's not it's not fair to Sabat. <laughs> um there, I think there's a really hilarious moment where Den tries to come save Sabat, and you think it's going to be a secondary fight in oh, here, yeah. but Dredd just stomps right on his head and crushes and kills him instantly. <laughs> I mean, he's only bones now. It's true. And eyes. <laughs> yeah. You know, but not the not the offensive parts of the human body, I guess. Um, <laughs> Which is good for him. He's been he's been yeah. through enough. He should just get his seriously just get a head stomp and just be done with it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Dread pulls Sadu's sword out 
and for the unspeakable crimes against the people of Earth, he sentences the Necromagus to death and runs him through in a fountain of gore. Oh, it's awesome. But then... Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's one of those two-stage boss fights. Right. Zubat's head <laughs> goes flying off of his body, uh. and then it... On trails of blood, which then harden and becomes a, like a big uh, blood daddy long legs or something yeah. like that. Just these big spikes of blood hovering his head in the sky. He's still alive and it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. This was nice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're closing out in the progs. Peter Doherty's on art for this one. Sabat is now a, basically just kind of the head in the center of a big blood squid or octopus, basically. Yeah, a blood topus. Yeah, ooh, blood topus. I like it. Yeah, he's pissed. The lads aren't like like Johnny and 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 Joe are kind of like, what do we do? Like, I don't know. I'm, this <laughs> this is one thing. Like, blood squid is not what I'm prepared to fight. We have not dealt with this before. He says to play it by ear as Sabat starts punching him in the face with, the, with with his tentacles. He says, like, listen, magic is going to sustain me forever, bros. I'm immortal. And just FYI, if you did kill me, I've linked with the Lodestone. So if you killed me, it would destroy the Lodestone and Earth as well. So go to hell. I got this pocket sand. I'm, I, I got the upper deck. I, I, I got the upper hand, you know. Right. <laughs> Um, Johnny calls him a lunatic with a thing for corpses, which is pretty yeah, funny. Fair. And Sabat gets real offended by that and sort of makes a point about, hey, what's wrong with corpses? Come oh, on, guys. I'm cool. Right. <laughs> That's not the defense you use. Dread responds with a pretty solid, um, like, big brother move where he just says, hey, Sabat. And then he like, punches him in the face. <laughs> But in this case, he does that thing where you hit somebody in the nose and it drives their nose bone up into their brain. Oh, mm. such a such an early 90s, like Steven Seagal way of killing people. I definitely seen that. But um, it doesn't kill Sabat. So it just really pisses him off. He's like, that really hurts, man. Come on. I said I was immortal. Um, and so his tentacles shred dread and leave his body lying in a pool of blood. Dread seems to be dead, and Sabat gives a final monologue and mentions that if he's successful here, then hey, Johnny's future will cease to exist. We can conquer and zombify Bathsheba over and over again. You've done nothing, Strontium Dog. Nothing. That kind of stuff. And we enter the final chapter with Carlos Escara on art, which is only right. <laughs> Beyond honor, there is duty. Beyond duty, obsession, beyond obsession, insanity, and beyond that, there is only Judge Dredd. <laughs> He's not quite dead. Right. The lawman grabs Sadu's sword and goes to attack Sabat. Johnny Alpha sees Dredd attacking and uses his Alpha Vision, sweet, poorly defined eye powers, to create an image of a giant grim reaper coming towards Sabat, and that distracts him enough for Dread to come in and sever the Necromagus's head from his oct blood to puss body. Jesus. In Mega City One, Cadet Gi Cadet Giant and Acting Chief Judge Hershey fight side by side. It's almost the end when suddenly all the zombies fall. Suddenly dead again. The scene is the same all over the world. Judgment Day is over, thanks to that dang Judge Dredd. 
There's a pretty good moment like out on the border at Hondo City where Judge Magruder just sees that the all the zombies fall and just kind of says lightly like, thanks, Joe. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Underground, the head of Sabat still stirs. They'll die unless it gets – it'll die unless it gets more energy and then destroy the lodestone with it. Not wanting to risk it, <laughs> um, Dread has a plan. He grabs Sabat's head and climbs the lodestone with it and then just jams it on top of the stone. Like, I don't know, putting an orange into one of those juicer things or something like that. Yes, he should have gotten out while he was ahead. Oh! This epic's over. Right. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> exactly. But yes, he should have quit while he was ahead. <laughs> He didn't really have a head for how tough Judge Dredd was. You know, he couldn't wrap right. his head around it. <laughs> well, he wrapped his head, his neck around the stone, at least. Oh. You know, in the end, in the end, if you try to you, to find a way to defeat the Strontium Dog Judge connection, you'll just be stumped. You know. Oh my God! <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah, he got started. <laughs> I oh, no. Anyway, he jams it on top of the stone. The sentence is life with no remission. You can't Sabat leave me here. <laughs> yeah, he'll, Sabat will forever be just a head on top of a giant crystal in the center of the earth. Immortal but helpless. Oh, no. I, but is he? He's still got his head and his magic and his power? Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Why don't you just make another blood to puss and just, you know, wreak havoc more? <clears throat> No, no. I mean, I don't think thought listen. It through. <laughs> yeah, li- you know these guys are comic book guys. They don't think through these oh, like eternal punishments. You know, God. <laughs> this is some real. Just leave your dad in a time trap over and over again. Yeah. Kind of solution to the That's problem. Fair. You know. Also, he sh- I also feel like he shouldn't be able to talk with just being ahead. But I guess that's that's canon. That happens in all types of yeah. media, right? Yeah. No, he's a magic guy. That's okay. that's totally fine. Okay. I mean. I'm thinking like, you know, presumably or maybe like uh, 60 years from now when Johnny gets back to the future, he can have some tech guys like preserve, like find a way to remove the head safely from the lodestone or something. Mm -hmm. But I don't know one way or another. I don't want to I don't want to say I I don't want to come right out and say that's a battle never be back, that this never gets revisited, you know, just sort of work for Futurama. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, listen, you guys have pointed out an obvious plot hole. We'll see if that string um, gets picked up at a later date. I'm sure I I, I would be shocked if it wasn't, you know, fair enough. (laughs) Sabat cries after them, but these guys don't care. Judge and Strontium Dog walk out of the caves. Dredd says that Johnny Alpha will get a pardon for his previous crimes, but stay out of my, stay out of my timeline, punk. You know, just stay off my turf. Johnny brings up the point that they're still stuck in the middle of the Radlands. And even if there aren't zombies, it's full of like criminals and weirdos and stuff. It's a long way back to Hondo. But as the two step out into the sunrise, Dredd just asks one simple question. Who the hell's going to mess with us? Fair. Good question. <laughs> I don't know anybody. They look out. This image of Dread and Johnny Alpha by Carlos Escara sort of walking side by side saying that is is a real iconic Judge Dread image. It's one that we'll see like other versions of as time goes by, both se- seriously and less seriously, sort of with people Dread teams up with and stuff like that. But 
I love these two guys sort of see having to come to an accord and proceeding to presumably just kick their ass all the way back to, to kick ass all the way back to Hondo, basically. A mass murderer and a bounty hunter. Who's killed his share for the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good times. The end of Judgment Day. Woo. Of course. Of course, in both the progs and the magazine, now the hard work of rebuilding must begin. Again. Meanwhile, Johnny Alpha will travel to the future to be killed by demons. I mentioned he will return, but not for many years. And that's it for this crossover. Oh, man. What do you guys think of Judgment Day? It's great. Yeah. Uh, gotta love the zombie nonsense. Uh, really wasn't expecting <laughs> a musical uh, during the finale there. But, you know, they always aim to please. Uh I was also curious, like I know with crossovers, like um, like when you do the whole Goku versus Superman thing, my answer is usually like, who's writing it? Like that's usually who's going to mm. make it work. So with these two characters, it definitely felt like they were leaning more on Dredd's badassery. Like he seemed to be like yeah. a big star. Like, uh, so I'm wondering how yeah. that came about. But I mean, Garth Ennis is very much like he's a, like. He's the guy who wrote this, and he's very much, um, the, you know, he's the writer for Dread at this point in the progs and stuff like that. Mm. But I will say an important thing to note is that um, Carlos Escara, this the, like the art, one of the artists in here, is the artist who created both uh, Judge Dread and Johnny Alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it to me, it's really fun for these two characters that were both created by the same artist to team up and be drawn by that artist as well, sort of doing some definitive editions of these characters and sort of how they interact with each other and stuff mm. like that. Like they're very much sort of, you know, I don't know, brothers by sort of from these creative teams and stuff like that. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, at this point, like this is very much, this also feels like a very Garth Ennis thing. Um, he's, one of the first, he's sort of a, a, a young Arthur here. I think he's like 21 or 22 at this point and grew up reading 2000 AD. And so far in comics he's written, he's got a very, he's had a very, especially for Dread, a very like sort of looking to the past and bringing back cool characters from those stories and stuff. Like, you know, some people accuse him of, of, of being more of a fanboy than a writer, sort of writing fan fiction instead of um, new stories or something like that. Um and this sort of has that feel of – or someone with that motivation having that idea for a pitch, you know? Like what if Judge Dredd and Johnny Alpha team up and all the other judges from around the world are there too and all this stuff, you know? Like right. it definitely feels like an Ennis thing or something that that he would be pushing for when he took took over on, on Dredd. It's cool. Yeah, Fox, what do you think of Judgment Day? How are you feeling? Uh, you know me, I like me a silly, a goof villain. Uh, I like a man <laughs> with a face cape. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like um, zombie nonsense, as you said, Eli, as just a general term for zombies now. <laughs> this is some zombie nonsense. It um, absolutely is. Which is which is good. You know, again, we're, we're just coming off of the back of, like, Judge Death. So, you know... It, it, I like the incorporation of magic. I could give mm. a crap about Gaia lines or whatever, but I definitely <laughs> do like uh, general necromancy and shenanigans in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. Man, <laughs> 30 billion people are dead, and it's just like, yeah. when's the next death toll going to hit? But um, Yeah, how do you top this is, is definitely a good question the for Earth sure. Earth <laughs> explodes. Um, but in all honesty, like I, I liked... 
I liked reading through all of these with you guys. It is a very mm-hmm. different experience kind of running through um, the entirety of it, right? Um, the, yeah, we, we just, yeah, I, sh- I should say the the judgment zone here, you know, folks will hear it sort of week by week, but we did it in one big mammoth recording session, definitely, and sort of a different, a, 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 a different kind of feel than our standard recordings. Plus, just having three people here is also a, <laughs> a, a, an interesting a crossover. Well. <laughs> Ooh. Um, and then I'll, I'll end on like, man, if you didn't see it yet, Judge Dredd has gotten a lot more graphically violent. Absolutely. Which I'm okay with. I like I like me some squibs mixed in with some comedy. I yeah. think this rode the line that it does that, you know, a good um, that a good 2000 AD prog does right where you get mm-hmm. a little bit of that silliness with the dower. Um, it's still a comic book after all, um, if that if that makes sense. Not that things should Definitely. be confined to a particular uh, uh, way of being, but I yeah. there was something else I thought was funny. And this is mostly I'm going to try to use this in my own writing was that uh, they kept making the danger just a higher number of zombies. It was like it was a, they're, just right. the, they're fighting zombies and all you need to do is draw them fighting zombies. But you just need a guy in the back being like this amount of zombies. Oh, no, we're so much more danger now. And then more zombie fighting yeah. panels and a guy just saying a bigger number. There's like a billion kazillion zombies out there. How are you going to get them all? That they keep increasing. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's an interesting thing about, I guess, this like this zombie concept or whatever. Because they, the zombies all seem pretty easy to kill, honestly. Right. Like, these guys are ripping – like, you know, Dred's able to just sort of punch them to custard pretty, pretty – right. without much trouble. Right. But they just keep coming and they keep being more and more of right. them, you know. Yeah, it's attrition <laughs> at that point, right? Yeah. I can't quantify all these zombies. (laughs) Too many. (laughs) Countless, countless zombies. (laughs) Luckily, there's still plenty, I feel like, you know, with not just zombies where people die and then come back, like maybe in The Walking Dead, but zombies where like the dead are coming out of graves and stuff like that. Then you start getting weird questions about like how far back does it go? Like you know, <laughs> will historical figures becoming zombies? Like what? What about like Cro Magnon zombies? All kinds of stuff like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, my I, plan, I would so. I would assume as long as the bones aren't completely gone, right? Skeleton. Mm. Yeah. yeah. One guy was just a skeleton. <gasps> <laughs> zombie uh, dinosaurs there are dinosaurs uh, in the cursed earth why didn't he bring that, back dinosaurs that's true Next <laughs> opportunity big yep. time oh my god what a freaking flub of a necromancer this guy is right Didn't i think even we'll think get an undead dinosaurs. t-rex at some point for the record i wouldn't that's so great i wouldn't count that out in the years to come listen i'm a five-year-old boy and i want my dinosaurs <laughs> exactly I, I also like that the um uh Gundam suits changed with the artists. They were still both oh, yeah. badass, but I just know that like mm-hmm. uh, me, yeah. There's less styling in the in in the Ormston ones for sure, right? But it's it's like one of those things. I've been on projects where it's a collaboration. Like, hey, you draw this page, and I'll draw this page, and then you're mm-hmm. partnered with an artist that has a completely different art style, and you have to draw something very specific. It's one thing if you can just like change outfits from scene to scene, but like, mm. all right, we're all in these giant Gundams. Like, I can't freaking draw that. <laughs> what do you? Why would you? Why would I be partnered with this person? Uh, whatever, I'm just, just do my big best. Suits, it's fine. Whatever, <laughs> right? The fans will understand. Yeah. Well, I think it's yeah. It is interesting just seeing these different um, artists come together because I think guys like um, 
Doherty and, and Ormstrom have a much more sort of impressionistic feel, I guess, whereas mm. Escara has this very like, like um, I don't know, maybe not realistic, but like, I guess, like a comic book kind of look that it, it is kind of interesting sort of jumping from one to another as these um, as the story progresses, certainly. Right. But all right. Well, oh, what did man. you think, Conrad? Oh. Conrad, oh God, who cares what that guy thinks? I like this a lot, honestly. I, you know, like as um someone who had who keeps all of this prog knowledge and like you know dread knowledge in the back of my head, like bringing back all these characters to kill them is a lot of fun. I'm so like, hey, it's that guy. Oh, he's dead. Like that kind of stuff. <laughs> Love seeing all the judges from around the world. I thought Sabat was a really fun villain. If I have one problem, it's just that I wish, um, you know, we've, we've got, we've destroyed some of these cities and we never really got a chance to look at them. You know, yeah. like we've seen, despite the fact that like we had um, that one uh, chopper story in there, we've still We've seen very so little of of, of Mega City Two, and yeah. now it's just been nuked off the off the face of the earth, you know. And I sort of, you know, as a as a Californian myself, I would have liked to see more more of that city in its uh, in, in its glory, you know. Um, maybe like I'd say I'd like to have seen us Sino sit, but honestly, I'm a little trepidatious yeah. about um, the caricatures that would be there. Yep. But still, like you know, I think the idea of a of a judge China is an interesting one. Maybe there's a Sino sit two out there someday or something. Um, but and I think that they did take some. You know, I appreciated them, if not killing Dread or whatever, at least killing off some recurring characters that we've seen and stuff like that. Even even if a lot of them were brought back just to be killed. And then <laughs> Dread and Johnny and then Dread and Johnny Alpha teaming up. Mwah! That's exactly what I want from a crossover like this. Something that like brings back a character I love to hang out with uh, Dread and the two of them sort of having a fight, but then ending up bros at the end. Like I don't you know, that's that's exactly the uh the trajectory of a team up that I want, you know. But yeah, a lot of fun, and it's been really great recording with with both of you guys for hey. sure. Really love this crossover stuff that went pretty good. Um, there's another crossover coming between the magazine and the progs, but we probably won't get, but we won't get to it till a 2022. Oh, good God! With the story, uh, uh, Wilderlands. Which is a, a slightly smaller story, not world destruction, but still some very important plot points for uh, Judge Dredd and members of the, of, the, of the Justice Department. Should be good. But then we'll be in the Wilder Zone. Ooh, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> Until then, though, at last we leave the Judgment Zone. Thank you, thank you guys so much for coming along with me on this adventure. And let's return to your regularly scheduled pro uh, to your regularly scheduled podcasting. Whoa! Story two, Soul Sisters. Script robot David Bishop and Dave Stone. Art robot Shaky Kane. Letting robot Ellie Deville. It's okay, Eli. Here we go. Coming back to these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Last time, it's a whole. It's, I don't know how I feel about it's it. It's a big mess, I gotta say. <laughs> Last time we saw Soul Sisters, Hope and Faith captured by the evil Doctor Delirium and strapped to tables with those lasers where they don't expect you to talk; they expect you to die. You know what I'm talking about? Um, hope, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Hope has something she's always wanted to tell Faith, but then a badass Robo Pope 
comes crashing through the ceiling of the place, machine gun and everybody, knocking the dock into a vat of his own Orgo 9, like sex fluid, and he uses, does that with a spring-loaded chest boxing glove. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the BBC... <laughs> yeah, that's the best place to keep those kinds of things. Meanwhile, at the BBC Media Tower, uh, mo- the most spectacular battle in living m- memory has just concluded. Sadly, le- sadly, we missed it, and Anansipia is being taken away in chains. Back at the lab, the Robopope explains that he's programmed for revenge... When suddenly delirium rises from the vat, but is swiftly knocked out by the Bible and crucifix of the Soul Sisters, and they finally saved the day! Hooray! They finally defeated Mr. Freeze. It's great. I guess they got him right at the last moment. All's well that ends well, and the Britsit judges um, reveal a way of contacting the sisters in their hour of need. A giant flaming cross symbol that I'm not sure is very cool at all, but whatever. The end of Soul Sisters! Uh, Went out with a bang instead of a whisper. Uh, Something, I guess. Visually. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, story wise, I'm I, as it we're we're doing time travel shenanigans. So past Eli, I remember being vaguely disappointed. So now I'm <laughs> saying it, and yeah, he was right. It is still vaguely disappointing. But I mean, they've sort of lampshaded it because the sisters make a joke about it. But this is very much a story where the characters role in it like their agency had very little to do with the ultimate outcome of the plot you know right like many things were resolved by them with them not only not being places but like not even being involved in the resolution of those stories for instance which i'm always i'm not really a fan of i guess there's just there's a lot of front-loaded things in soul sisters that never really came to fruition or felt like something that was like a joke that these two David that these two Daves had like mm-hmm. on their own. They're like, oh man, we should put that in the story too. Yeah, that'd be hilarious. Right. right. But when it kind of <laughs> when it when it comes out on the page, if you aren't in on those jokes, it's a little impenetrable. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it sums up if I was gonna have someone like, hey, give me two pages that kind of summarize Soul Sisters, it would be this first page where it ends with, hey, there's something I always wanted to tell you. And then giant robot Pope falls from the sky and machine guns everyone. That would be like, yeah, if that if you like that, that's what this story is about. It's about a bunch of things set up. We're not going to cover that. On to this thing we wanted to do. And then that's just kind of the whole thing. On the topic of different heavenly superhero stories. Superhero stories related with with the religious aspect, I guess you could say. Let's continue to Story 3, Devlin Script robot John Smith, art robot Sean Phillips, lighting robot Steve Potter. All right, Eli, right. The ultimate episode of this first part of Devlin We see the Justice Department sub Argosi going in close to the underwater sea prison of Aquatraz as a shirtless and loin-clothed Devlin Waugh is still killing these vampires. Very well done. I was just taken, yeah. taken aback by how muscular and uh, loin-clothy this, this panel is. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Aboard the Argosy, a seaman hears tapping on a torpedo tube, and a vampiric fist comes punching out. Waz dispatched the vampires here as the ones on the sub start to hunt for Red October their way through the undersea craft. Uh, Devlin stands among his defeated foes and trades barbs with the evil vampire Landis as the vampires in the sub do their grim work. And I'm sorry, there's just a lot of flashing between the two different scenes here. Um, Landis leaps at Wa, weighing akimbo as the doors to the submarine uh, bridge hold hold against the vampire assault. Wa punches a hole through Landis's neck as a vampire punches a hole through the sub's bulkhead door. The submarine vamps have reverted to a bestial form as Landis and Wa rip rip each other apart, only stopping fighting as the sub starts to crash into into the roof of the greenhouse where they are having their melee in a pretty sweet, wordless full, wordless full page as this massive, uh, craft just smashing into them. And that's clearly like, this could be a bad time. Right. This seems to be the end as a few survivors, including Devlin and Murray the Exterminator, make it to the surface and are taken away as the Justice Department tries to explain the uh, rumors of vampire infestation. Um, Soon, the vampires adapt to living underwater and are breeding new vampires, and the whole place actually becomes kind of a new Bahamas tourist spot, complete with facilities to, like, four big game hunters to shoot these vampires called Fangland. (laughs) Six months later at Vatican City, Devlin is doing some life drawing as a cardinal asks him to go back to work as a demonic investigator, but Devlin's far more interested in art and partying hard these days, and I guess it's hard to blame him. The end for now of Devlin Dwar. Yeah, it's... uh, The ending seemed weird. But I guess mm. uh, uh, fitting. I think it's um, you know, vampires are you know, uh, ba. And Devlin was a really strong, overconfident human. So mm-hmm. he just this is the story of how he became a vampire, and then became you know, assumably an awesome, very powerful vampire. I guess. Yeah, a vampire who maybe eventually will hunt other vampires, right? For his Vatican masters or something like that, right? Yeah, but it was still that was a lot of setup for just that. But you know, I guess it's the art was amazing, the narrative was cool. I think mm-hmm. as it now that we've gone through time travel, I do have more appreciation for this than I did <laughs> than past Eli the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also noticed that they didn't make vampires a- allergic to running water. Like usually, ocean water would purify vampires. There's supposed to be something uh, holy mm. or purifying about it. But they're like, no, they just swim in it. And I'm like, huh, okay, well. Yeah, I mean, as always, when you tell your own vampire story, you can pick and choose what mm-hmm. uh, rule, what, 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 what vampire rules you can take. You know, if right. crosses work or staking them through the heart does anything and all this stuff. Right. Yeah, I think I was, I was like, oh, huh, how come I've never heard of like a underwater vampire story before? And I was like, oh, right, because uh, they're... Uh, water is sacred, so it like purifies them. Yeah, like, I know like in Castlevania or whatever. But yeah, I know vampires have trouble with running water, like they have trouble crossing rivers and stuff. Mm, right. But like, I guess That's like what you want. right, Dracula could kind of like cross the English Channel into England or something. Or I right. don't know. It's yeah, I believe he took boats 
and he was miserable yeah. the whole time. But it's like right. that was like yeah, Dracula was, being the most powerful vampire was like yeah, I can definitely barely stand. Right. Yeah, definitely one of those things where I think the boat ends up sort of drifting into port with everybody aboard dead because Dracula <laughs> kills them all. <laughs> right. As opposed to a, a safe ocean voyage or something like that, you know. Right. Like I, yeah, I agree. Though I think if you compare how I feel about Devlin Waugh now versus how I felt about him the first time we might have recorded this, or some of the recordings leading up to this episode, I feel like I might have been more down on it at the time, and I'm feeling a little smoother about it these days. I guess. Yeah. I think the moral you know, this is, is just we some just fun stuff. I think the moral is we should just double up on all of our episodes. Just go back and re-record all of our episodes and give a second no. take. No. Okay. okay. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> I'm a busy man. I got life to live. I can't, you know, do it once. That's usually fine. You know, I yeah. got to find I gotta find time to do other stuff with my life, Eli. I got other podcasts to do. I got little Warhammer guys to paint. I'm That's true. That's packing up my apartment as we're recording this. Um, and you know, sometimes I even like work out or go to the gym. And speaking of Ooh. which, let's go nice. to yeah, story four, Judge Hershey. Hershey's going to the gym too. Script robot Dave Stone, art robot Paul Pert, lighting robot Gordon Robson. First time we're seeing artist Paul Pert here in the podcast. He'll do a few things in the magazine in 2008 over the years. I'd say he's got kind of a Dean Ornstrom kind of feel, I guess. See, we're comparing one artist to another. At Eddie's gym, a lady with a pink mohawk, Gina, can't push herself anymore. So Eddie offers her some drugs. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> our own Judge Hershey is taking off her uniform to reveal her extremely jacked body. She's got some time off. So now she's working out here at Eddie's gym because she likes the atmosphere. But then a dude comes flying through a window. And I'll mention that, like, we've definitely seen the judges have their own gyms in, like, sector houses and stuff like that. Like, they usually, judges usually don't go to civilian gyms to work out. But whatever. Hmm. You know, don't worry about it. She likes the vibe, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, So, yeah, so guy comes flying in. Bad time. She tells the gym receptionist to call the judges and goes to investigate. Finds a gym full of people murdered by gym equipment, which is tough. Um, and then she soon finds Gina, who is now grossly overmuscled with giant red eyes, pulling a man apart piece by piece. Oh, it's gross. Uh, Gina attacks Hershey and Hershey fights back, of course. She recognizes Gina as being under the effects of engineered quiche. She must have gotten a bad batch. And I feel like this is a term we'll see a little bit going forward, like quiche, I think, which feels like a British version of like the term like dope that you'd say Mm -hmm. in the US is just kind of a here's a generic term we use for drugs, basically. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, He's on dope. Like that could mean marijuana. That could mean heroin. It doesn't, you know, it's it's it casts a wide net. Right. And just being a bad batch of it just kind of sums up the – and then, you know, 
not the good kind of this vague yeah drug. <laughs> right. yeah the kind that kind of that kind of turns you into like wolverine or something right, like that exactly. like a, or we, sorry we've all been abomination there. like a like a hulk villain you know right. um yeah. <laughs> so hershey gets knocked into a bench press she kicks gina away and grabs a barbell using it like a baseball bat slamming gina around until eventually she is crushed by a couple hundred pound plates Ooh, that'll get you yeah um, only then do some other judges arrive. They arrest Gina and shut the place down to look for the supplier of drugs. All in a good workout for Hershey, she says. And then she passes out. <laughs> the end. <laughs> nice. Just nice some fun story. workout stuff by Hershey here. Yeah, a little one-off. You know, I like when Hershey shows up and does stuff. And I'm interested in this, like... Like, they've got a very specific view of this character of Hershey right now. Like, uh, Pert kind of draws her with a mole that I don't know if she always has, I guess. And I think they're really trying to make her on the opposite end of the spectrum, as Judge Anderson say. So, they're making her very, very butch, I guess is what I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> a, 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 along with her black hair and severe demeanor. Like, I don't know, they're just trying to make her be like way tougher than Anderson, I guess. Mm, just got to right. have these duality of female judges or whatever. Someone right, else can of course. work it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, that takes us about halfway through our Meg progress this time, Eli. So let's take a quick break to talk about Colors, Dreadlines, and the Mega City News. Uh, issue 9, it's the end of Devil and Waugh as we see the vamp himself mooning, mooning about in an undersea greenhouse. Inside the issue, there's ads for the 1993 yearbooks, which we'll discuss next week. And the editorial discusses the end of the current stories and teases an upcoming new look from the magazine, which we'll talk about in a minute. The credits text reads, Love at First Bite. And there's a note requesting no more unsolicited submissions at this time. Stop sending stuff in, please. <laughs> After Judgment Day, there's an ad for Mechanismo, uh, coming episode, uh, coming issue 12, this upcoming Dread story with a robo-judge. I predict, I predict I'm going to like that. Oh, look at this guy. He is doing Back <laughs> to the Future thing now. He's seen the future. After Soul Sisters, there's a big page-long article actually by a political cartoonist Martin Rousen who's sort of trying to answer the question of if Judge Dredd is a fascist. And while, you know, I'm not like – I'm not sure if Dredd fits the dictionary definition of fascism, but what – Rousen says, and I think is really interesting, is that the purpose of Dread is more to be a dark satire of our present day. You know, he's let yeah. like Dread's political identity and beliefs don't really exist so much as they exist in a reaction to what we are currently going through, I guess, if oh, that makes sense. Deep. So it's tough to say, is Dread a fascist as much as like you know, is he fascistly reflecting our present day? You know, I think mm -hmm. Rouse makes an interesting point that like, no, Dredd isn't a fascist because he's a comic book character, right? He's not real. <laughs> he doesn't have any political beliefs, dude. But right. <laughs> then goes further to kind of say like, but like, you know, as a comic book character, that means he exists within our own society as opposed to his and so we could see thus that it reflects back on us or whatever i don't know i think it's an interesting concept i guess yeah definitely i'm gonna be pondering that tonight <laughs> oh you're making fun of me now but like no, i don't know really. like 
I think that's genuinely thought provoking. I like because I, th- I generally think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind about so much science fiction. I guess yeah. like yeah. that generally, I think even whether the author who does it knows it or not, like science fiction. So uh, like generally, I uh, almost yeah, generally actually sort of exists more as a view of the of the current times the story is being written. As right. opposed to the actual future that it tries to depict, I guess. Like, you know, a story about like, you know, a utopia like, – like the Jetsons, just to get, get a real fast so one. Like the Jetsons <sighs> reflects more about what 1960s what, – what, what, what the, you know, society of the 1960s thought was important than actually an, an actual future of flying cars and, you know, big dome houses or whatever, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then similarly – we can take those same stories and have them reflect on our, our present day of, you know, living in this early 20th century world where things are weird. I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think just the concept of understanding um, the, how fictional characters can fit into the narratives and perspectives is something I haven't really thought about. Um, because in my mind, all characters are based off of the creator's perspective on like it's bits sure. and pieces of their reality that they are yeah. able to put together and exaggerate on. So kind of taking it like, hey, they don't actually exist. They're constructs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and I, th- yeah, cool and I think then it. also, you know, the the writer or the creator themselves sort of exists in space as well and it's influenced mm. by the society around them and stuff. You know, it's, right. a, it's an interesting whatever. This is sort of like literary, <laughs> like the literary criticism that you talk about in college or whatever when you start talking about like – What's behind this? You know, not just right. what this. What is this story about? But what is it about in the context of the writer at the time, and what was going on in the world as things take place? And it makes things in, um, different, interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Another podcast. We should get. We go further into it. <laughs> Listen, yeah, like that's one where. I've got to find some like like literary critic person that can explain this stuff to me. Like I'm not be the person <laughs> who they're talking to here. You know, I don't know. Um, anyway, anyway, um, there's also several previews of coming stories, which we'll talk about um, after this section. After Devlin Wall, there's a teaser for a Judge Dread calendar. Then some dreadlines where letters complain about Soul Sisters, ask if Armageddon will have more 2080 backstory, and if we'll see more off-planet parts of the Dread World. And some general questions about Dread World, geography, and upcoming magazine artists. And then the magazine ends with an ad for a Forbidden Planet and the free gifts included in 2080 Prog 800, which we are going to talk about, I guess, the week after next or something. I'm, I'm, I'm come unstuck in the timeline here, Eli, but we'll talk about that soon. <laughs> <laughs> Issue 10, Mark Wilkinson draws a kind of iconic, if not super explained, cover here where we see Dredd's head looking like a spiral cut orange peel floating around the middle of the dark night. <laughs> um we also got a new look for the magazine here with the editorial and legal notes on the edge of the pay- of the first page, which also has like a, a big image of dread from the story within. Um, the editorial talks about new thrills and an offer for a cool new version of Judgment on Gotham. The credit text is still there with the um, with the line uh, inside dread's head. 
And uh, mid-issue, we have the first and last two months of the 1993 uh, calendar, complete with the days the magazine will go on sale that year. There's art by Colin McNeil, Nick Percival, Sean Phillips, and Shaky Kane. Dreadlines has responses to a previous letter, which has me just wanting to avoid all this letter column drama, Eli. I'm not a fan of it. Um, And then ask for more grim and gritty stories. There's discussion about some British-type stuff that's confusing to me and a compliment meant to the idea of black and white art in the mag which i am a fan of it's just like the the crazy thing about the letters pages in here is just that these conversations take seem i i feel like i don't know late a later period of the magazine they had these um letter page conversations that felt like they literally would go on for years because it would be Mm -hmm. like like someone writes a letter, then you know that letter's got to be published. Someone reads it in the letter, writes a response, and that takes like a month Oof. or two months. And then whoever wrote the first letter sees that response and writes back in about it. And there's just right. like it just keeps going and going. Right. I don't know the the energy of you know a Facebook argument, but uh, spaced out over several months because right, right, yeah, it's it. like it's like a big Twitter fight, but like being done by carrier pigeon or something right, like exactly. that, you know, right? It's Two tough. turtles doing it, right? <laughs> right. It's it's real, oh, man. I don't know, so I'm not I'm not going to give these guys these folks writing these letters the benefit of. Um, <laughs> Of going in depth what their arguments are, Eli. All right, we got taking the high on. ground. I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, and speaking of getting up high in the city Ooh. of Mega City One, we can go to Story Five: The Taking of Sector One Two Three. So Judgment Day's over. Oh, sorry. Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Carlos Escara, lettering robot Tom Frame. Judgment Day's over, Eli. Escara is back in the magazine, which is nice. Judge Dredd and Chief Magruder stand over the much smaller Judgment Day Memorial in comparison to the giant mass graves from Necropolis, for instance. And she wonders if someone has it out for the city. You know, there's just been so much that's gone wrong in the last couple months or last couple years, it seems. But Dredd assumes that if there was some centralized bad guy causing all the problems they're going through, that they'd have found them and arrested them by now. It's just sort of law of elimination, basically. Um, Things are rough in Mega City 1. They lost a third of the judges, like, just to fighting the zombies. And there's more in the hospital. There's a serious mutant problem. Now the border wall has been partially destroyed. Um, but worst of all is that um, now that zom- z- zombie numbers are down, the Mega City One citizens are back to being citizens, most notably in Sector uh, One, Two, Three, which has declared independence, which is not good at all. <laughs> um, outside the sector, we see uh, Judge Columbus and a few other judges are pinned down waiting for backup when Dredd arrives. And of course, he's it. He's the backup. <laughs> Columbus says that's ridiculous as another judge gets shot in the face right next to him and killed. <laughs> Dreads bike counter snipes. And for now, they just got to make do with what they got. And I, sh- I should say, Eli, that um, the name of this story, The Taking of Sector 123, is a reference to the movie The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a pretty fun movie, like sort of an old school um, 
like crime movie basically about these guys that uh these uh guys that take a uh a subway car ransom in New York City basically it's an okay. interesting one yeah. And I guess on the topic of movie references at the Vinnie Jones block and Vinnie Jones is a hard man soccer player turned actor. Um, you might know him as like Bullet Tooth Tony from the movie Snatch or, or the Juggernaut from one of the – not Deadpool but one of those earlier X-Men movies. He's this kind of like right. tough English guy. Yeah. but. He hadn't started acting yet. He was just a soccer, like a soccer, like a, not hooligan because he's a player, but a guy that (laughs) a soccer hooligan would respect quite a bit type character. Um, So a bunch at this block, a bunch of citizens are shouting cockney, rhyming slang and terrible English accents as their boss, Uncle Jimmy, has a plan to take out the judges, but is interrupted by the kiss-heavy goth gang of Misery Jones and his goth squad in their leather and big black haircuts. <laughs> they say they're the biggest juve gang in the sector and they want in on whatever Uncle Jimmy's plan is. Jimmy explains what it is off screen and then sends out strike teams to get it going. <laughs> um, back and uh, whatever we're keeping it very mysterious at this point I guess and the goths are like ooh interesting alright um, <laughs> back with Dread we learned they've got just under to settle all this stuff they've got 200 judges and 4 H wagons um, and a massive amount of prisoners that are all just tossed into a big pit sort of centrally to the sector <laughs> Dread says to get a pilot and your best long gunner ready to go and then he goes to talk to the prisoners. Dredd asks the prisoners who's the boss who asks the prisoners who the boss of Sector 123 is and gets a lot of jeers, but a citizen from the Vinnie Jones block seems quiet, so Dredd hasn't pulled out. Some truth serum later, the judges learn about Jimmy and his plan, and Dredd goes into action. He gets the H Wagon in the air and the expert markswoman Judge Hart into position, and we then see Jimmy laying down his plan. Which is basically to bomb all the blocks surrounding the sector, creating a wall to keep the judges out of sector one, two, three. Easy. I'm not too sure about this plan, Eli, but I guess we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Just bombs people and judges. I mean, that's. Yeah. Listen, I mean, there's thousands of people living in each of these blocks. What's, you know, it couldn't be that bad, I guess. (laughs) As the teams head out to bomb these blocks, Misery Jones comes in. He's got some second thoughts about this whole plan. Because, like, listen, he and his goth gang, they mostly want to look tough, not kill tens of thousands of people. Right. But what a poser. (laughs) Yeah. In response to this, Jimmy makes the goth squad his personal bodyguard and when people and when one of his goons sort of questions this he says oh it's for a laugh isn't it (laughs) he's brits suddenly jimmy gets a call though the judges have all pulled back and stopped shooting now there's one gunship in the sky and on the ground they're sending in just one judge judge dread both gunship and sniper are in position as dread gives the order go Next worst. time. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be scary stuff. Next time, Family Trouble in the Jackson 5. <laughs> which I believe we'll learn is a set of like five um, city blocks that are all named after uh, different uh, Jackson family members. You know, right. Yeah. The timing, is this in good taste or is this in like, I don't know, calling things the Jackson 5. 
It's fine. Well, okay. like, yeah. the, <laughs> like, I mean, listen, there's always, there's always a reason to make fun. Like the, like Michael Jackson's been weird since like the early eighties or something. Right. Like, yes. you know, from bad on, you know, he's, he's weird on the cover of bad. We all know it, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, at this point, like the big allegations against him have not come out, I believe. Right. Yeah. So th- yeah. that I be- I think might even be later in '93, but has not happened yet. So <laughs> you know, whatever. It, uh, although it is it's weird fine, fine. that there would be a Michael Jackson reference, and this main bad guy is named Uncle Jimmy, which I think is a reference to this uh, British guy, uh, Jimmy Savile who was this celebrity that was like big into also big into children's causes and stuff like that but then mm-hmm. was turned out to be not a very good guy when it comes to oh. being cool with kids or something like that. I don't want to get into it too much. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> We're just trying to tackle the fictional issues here, you know, trying to educate. That's right. Yeah, come on. Learn about it somewhere else. But speaking of uh, ancient history affecting today, let's go to Story 6, Cal Have Justice. Script robot Jim Alexander, art robot John Ridgway, letting robot Gordon Robson. New story here. And it's the first multi-issue black and white story we've had here in the magazine. It's Jim Alexander's first time on the podcast. And I'm hoping that they give artist John Ridgway some scared kids to draw because that's where he's the best. He's an excellent artist of that. Well, actually, we're in a, on a Ridgway period here because he's doing both Cal Have Justice here in the magazine. And then I believe next or episode after next on Space Spinner, we'll be starting um, the Journal of Luke Kirby, which he also draws. But anyway, a lot of Ridgeway. The intro text and we're we're starting to see these credits pages at the start of these stories where there's sort of a page with a picture from the story as like a big picture on the credits page. And then like a column on the left hand side, which basically just has a rundown of the general concept of the story we're about to read. So this one (laughs) just telling us about uh, Calhab, which is basically the dread world version of Scotland. It's a dumping ground for the world's nuclear waste and an environmental nightmare, technically part of Britsit. But there's been a rise in nationalism in the territory, and the radioactivity has made folks a little crazy. They're readopting this tartan warrior look, brewing radioactive whiskey, and the most famous Calhab judge is Ed McBrain, who we'll see here. So let's get going. All right, so here we go, Eli. In the Britsit Galleries, a guide shows tourists the Stone of Destiny, which is a real-life artifact um, that was used to crown Scottish kings until it was taken by the British in, like, the 1200s or something, long, long ago. Um, In fact, this is a story where history has gotten away from the sci-fi because in 1996, the stone was returned to the Scottish people, but apparently not in Dreadworld, where instead, after a docent shows people past it, a pair of dudes in kilts and tam o'shanters, extremely Scottish, pull out a claymore from like a hidden pouch and break the glass and steal the dang thing. It's like Black Panther, Eli. Oh my gosh. <laughs> is pull out a claymore make it triple the Scottish? Or is that like, how Scottish are they going? I don't. Ooh, real <laughs> Scottish. <All right>. Eli. <laughs> so much, almost it's so much that it hurts. If they were covered in clear tape, that's the only way it could be more <laughs> Scottish, Eli. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> that's probably not a cool thing to say. I'm probably going to get in trouble for it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they've got this artifact. The Brits call for help, and the capital city of Glasgow, we see bearded, kilted, sword-wielding wielding Judge McBrain on the case. He and another judge come upon some locals setting a fire to a car and seem willing to let them go until the stones start flying. And then it's time to fight. Um, But as they go into it, we then cut to a chief judge Murdoch or sorry, of a of a younger judge Murdoch bursting into the chief inspector's office to complain about McBrain. And they explain a lot of just Scottish stuff here, Eli, that's difficult (laughs) for me to keep up. You know, yeah, uh, like you can't do it all. control showing the cadets how to keep some bombs kneecap without having to bend dune. A lot of this phonetic <laughs> Scottish talking going on here. <laughs> but as um, as Judge Murdoch says, McBrain's um, in the in the uh, Calhav Academy teaching some cadets the better part of valor when it comes to the radiation-addled people of Calhab, and then gets called to the chief's office. He's tasked to oversee a get-together between the Campbell and Abercrombie Whiskey Clans. They say that they're doing it to plan an upcoming festival, but listen, it could definitely be about the Stolen Stone of Destiny. <laughs> He's assigned an empath named Shahalian and Judge Murdoch, who is his partner for this uh, riot control thing that went bust, and Murdoch's not pleased about that. Meanwhile, at Glamis Castle, home of Clan Campbell, the Clan Chief indeed has the Sword of Destiny, and he explains his plan, which is basically to kill the Amber Crombies, unite the clans, take over Calhab in a bloody, messy fashion, and if the judges get in the way, they're haggis! As he frosts at the mouth at his upcoming, uh, you know, rise to power. Right. Next time. Absolutely. Next time. Haggis time. (laughs) Do, 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 do. Haggis time. (laughs) Just a lot of world building right here, Eli. You know, we're really trying to, like, they're establishing both Calhab and Judge McBrain and just the stories we're going to find ourselves here. It's interesting, but like they're definitely like, I hope what I just said made sense because I'm like them. I was trying to get a lot into a little bit of time there. Just to right. what's going on with this Calab story. Right. Exactly. I think it works. And I'm excited to see, you know, what comes next, which I oddly yeah. enough don't remember. There's <laughs> so. like radioactive whiskey, ghosts, right. giant. Yeah. Man, giant man-eating Venus flytraps. A lot goes on, honestly. Yeah. I feel like I'm the department in uh, Judge Dredd where people just are like, we got zombies. Uh-huh, sure, yeah, let's uh, research how to what to do with zombies. But now we they got know how to deal with it, yeah. These things, uh, sure, hey, why not? So I'm not surprised by anything, but I'm also like, I can't really take, you know, I don't want to um, j- jump the gun. Like, I got to wait, wait for it to hit to land sure i remember yeah, like yeah, yeah. t-rexes no that might have been a different story my future my time skipping is uh listen messing it up li- like rain or li- like you know listen there's always a chance of dinosaurs i would say <laughs> every single judge dread story or story in the magazine has about a 20 percent chance of right. t-rexes showing that up feels you right. know that's that's the number i was gonna say too to about 20 percent yeah 
like at least and it'll 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 move up and down you know like there's variety in there right the average but yeah some very high chance of t-rexes some less so i guess they should have had feathers you think they would have added that i guess Mm -mm. beyond their time anyway sorry no well god you're gonna get me off on a weird dread tangent that i want to get into but anyway um from yeah from calhab let's move a little bit further south eli and talk Mm. about story seven armitage script robot dave stone art robot charlie adlard letting robot any park house armitage is back with a new artist hooray so at the uh, Oswald Mosley block, and Oswald Mosley is a uh, a fascist British politician from uh, the early 20th century, and a very good um, like he's sort of a character you refer to if you just kind of want to brand a politician, an English politician as not being a good person. Like oh yes, they like that Oswald Mosley, of course. <laughs> um, but anyway, in there, there's a fancy party going on. Inside a greenhouse or something, as a lady wearing not a ton of leather clothes leads a fat dude in, chain, in a chainmail shirt up some floating steps. We see some rich guys lounging when suddenly there's a crash, and one of the rich guys runs into a side room to see what is clearly the scene of a gruesome murder. He then goes down to a phone booth and makes a call, and like the, we only hear one side of the conversation, basically, like, she's dead, he killed her, of course there's witnesses. And then on the other side of the phone, we see a mouth saying that it will take care of everything, stay where you are. Keep him out of sight, which is very mysterious. Um, hmm. Or I, I assume he's saying that because sadly the bottom page of this is a little cut off in this version of the scan we have. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, or I guess not long afterwards, Detective Armitage and his rookie partner Treasure Steele are on the case where the, uh, the story is being narrated from her journal. And we learn that she's been working with Armitage for about a month. They're currently at a casino of some kind. Where they're displaying, or, or sorry, where the casino is displaying like weird war beasts fighting each other for sport as people make bets. But the detectives aren't there for that. They're instead going after murderer Adam King, and they soon find him. Armitage and Steele manage to run him down and arrest him. And when King punches Armitage, the judge slugs him back and hangs him over the war beast fighting pit. <laughs> they take him in, and with that settled, they, um, get their next case um and indeed it is a breakout it, it and it's a, being called in as a break-in at the empty oswald mosley block armitage thinks control is um extracting the michael about this which is a fancy way of saying uh, taking the mickey or uh, fooling around mm. and when the judges um Walk through the golden halls of the building. They eventually come to that greenhouse we saw earlier where they find a bunch of violently murdered partygoers mixed in with plants and greenery. Ah, jeez. hate when that happens. Seriously. Ruin a night. Next time, Influential Circles. Just a fun murder plot stuff for the start of this new Armitage story, you know? Yeah, yeah. I like that they're kind of going back to, you know, a simplified buddy cop, um, you know, murder, whodunit type of narrative. I think that's very fun and palatable. You and me, Eli, you know, we're big fans of the cop on the edge, certainly. Right. Exactly. And I would say that 
we've sort of had two very iconic cop on the edge moments in this issue of the magazine. The first one was in Calhab where that guy's where uh, McBrain's partner comes like bursting in like he's he's dangerous he's out of control you gotta suspend him or something and then the chief is basically just like he gets results you know that kind of thing (laughs) right and then the other one we got is yeah just um like thinking you're getting an easy case but suddenly it turns out to be like a crazy ultra murder or something like oh geez again that kind of stuff every time very cop on the edge for sure (laughs) And speaking of cops, at least slightly on the edge because of the uh, emotional weight of their psychic powers, let's go to Story 8, Anderson's Side of Vision. <laughs> He's kind of on the edge. It's fine. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> script robot Alan Grant, art robot Arthur Ranson, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. Oh, yeah. More Anderson. And the arts by one of my faves, Arthur Ranson here. I always say oh, yeah. this, I feel like Eli, but you know, his re- I really like his, his style here. It's very realistic and that contrasts with a lot of the sci-fi judge stuff that we get in the course right. of these comics. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, a lot of cross-hatching, uh, a lot of studying of anatomy. And I'll, I really give a lot of credit to the backgrounds and architecture. Um, mm-hmm. It's a huge pain. Absolutely. I hate doing it. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll we'll talk about it more, but this really feels like it was drawn from maybe photos or from life, I guess, of just sort of different right. New York City street scenes here. I think so too, yeah. Um, yeah. So at a construction site, Judge Anderson on her lawmaster is given four hours to go into a rupture in the wall deep into the undercity beneath Mega City One. As she goes in, um, once – After that, after four hours, they're going to close the gate and it doesn't reopen. Anderson, we see her riding through the decayed streets of of an old New York City, which apparently Mega City One was just built right on top of. Like above the skyscrapers is where the foundation of Mega City One is above uh, New York City. Right. She she sees some troglodytes, the uh, the sort of – once human people that live in this uh, darkened uh, urban, uh, abandoned urban land, they attack her for food until she fires a few shots in the air. She's disgusted by them, but is after bigger game because there's a vampire down here. Oh, so many vampires. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she rides through the city streets, picking up psychic emanations of the previous world. Like she says, they thought New York was bad. Then she... They should see it now. And man, again, these uh, cityscapes here are really amazing as she passes by. I think that's the Chrysler building and then a couple other like uh, New York high rises, including one that's got like a faded Batman bus right. uh, advertisement on it and stuff like that. Yeah. That's my favorite. And Coca-Cola too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just these sort of faded remains of uh, of advertisements against what's sort of crumbled into brick, uh, into exposed brick. She says there's 11,017 religions in Mega City One, from the aged ants of Azrael to the zomboid whirling buglies, but none have this kind of style, she says, as she walks flashlight in hand into the abandoned hulk of uh, St. Patrick's cathedral which 
we get this aerial shot of it that's just really amazing. You know, St. Patrick's is this big cathedral in New York. It's got these huge, um, like kind of gothic spires and stuff. And yeah. the way you, they, um, Ranson draws it, you can see it's kind of like cruciform shape. Like it's kind of built to right. look like a, like a cross when you see it from above and stuff like that. Yeah. Very well done. It's really neat. Inside, she sees stain. She sees dead bodies and stained glass. But something seems wrong when suddenly a winged figure attacks her. And there's man, just this really awesome full page of this like sort of like she calls it a vampire, but it's got uh, feathered wings like an angel, sort of swooping down on Anderson, lit by the light of her flashlight as she sort of like has her law master out and prepares to shoot. It's a really arresting image here. I think it's really great. Yeah. yeah. I actually uh, screen captured this one and I keep it on my desktop. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> How much I like it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really good. Yeah. it's So the vampire's got big pointy sharp teeth but anderson has a lawgiver and shoots this thing four times and that's yeah. enough no miracles Beat, for you pal beats sharp teeth every time <laughs> yeah but anderson soon regrets making a witty quip just because like i don't know this guy is a little bit more angelic than you'd like to be to gun down in a church you know <laughs> <laughs> She drags the vampire out of the church, wondering if it even has a right to live. And she's sorry about killing it as she sort of drives off. But it looks like the Trog's looking for food and finding this uh, winged guy aren't going to have those same moral qualms. Yeah. Oh, man. Grim. It's kind of charity in a way. Yeah, you gotta feed the hungry. Feed the hungry. Uh, sort, of sort of a Jonathan Swift kind of situation where you're feeding the hungry. <laughs> They're equally hungry, you know, right. modest proposal and so forth. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But with that, Eli, we finished our coverage of issues 9 and 10 of the Judge Red magazine. All right. Nice. A lot of, like, almost every, I think everything was a one-off this time. No continued things, like four thrills per per issue, eight through eight stories overall. So I got to ask you, what were your top and bottom ones? Yeah. I wish I remembered what my what they were last time, but I'm just going off the, from the holster this time. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, bottom is Soul Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't age well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> even returning to it a second time and redoing it, I was like, still doesn't bring joy to my heart. No, no. <laughs> uh, Recondo uh, it out of here. Right. But... Uh, uh, I really liked Reason to Be Cheerful, the um, uh, Judge and- Anderson story. Yeah. Um, uh, the art helped, of course, but as I said, um, you just kind of bringing attention to Anderson's kind of just position from Hershey and Dread. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, seeing, hitting it this time in the perspective of these previous stories where we saw Hershey and Dread, I was like, she is her own character. She even seems to be kind of moving away from other things. Even she made a joke similar to Dread and was like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do that. And that was just like, I'm not Dread. Like, that's not that's not who I am. And I yeah, really being, appreciated that. Being self-conscious about a quip is definitely a difference from Dread. Definitely, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. And having a, yeah, this uh, level of compassion and empathy for, you know, the situation and the people around. I find, mm. uh, uh, refreshing in this uh, in this in this universe sure 
Yeah, definitely. I think for me, um, I think actually I will I will join you in solidarity. Actually, um, Soul Sisters not that great. Anderson really good. Very sort of introspective, melancholy story for sure. And I just love Ranson's art, especially when he draws Anderson. That's just a really good time. Mm-hmm. Um, Deadland Wa I thought ended fine in a way that may be yeah. interested for future stories, even though we won't actually see very much Devlin for the near future he'll be back briefly in 93 and then back for a bit longer in 97 so i don't know um calhab and um and armitage both really just starting this week so it's hard to judge them fully as opposed to the self-contained anderson story i guess definitely yeah. the cream of the crop for this time and a good a good one to get for this for the relaunch of this magazine because i yeah. feel like this is a story you could show your friends and they'd be like whoa this looks cool you know right. i don't know <laughs> that yeah. Makes sense, but yeah yeah i did want to give honorable mention to devlin wah second time i appreciate a lot more than i did the first time so i gotta you know, say i feel like i liked it too and really man i feel like i'm a sucker for these like full page no dialogue right. like uh spreads or something like that right. like if you give me one of those in your comic like i'm gonna give you credit you might not deserve or you know <laughs> right. or, you know make me look at you favorably because i like that kind of thing right. i don't know no it's good to know that about yourself that way you can you know avoid being taken advantage of when people just you know Listen, I want – listen, I, I'm putting it out there because I want people to take advantage of it, Eli. <laughs> like, I'm ready, you know, whatever. <laughs> I like that stuff, so I want to see more of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Stitch, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMeg1.com. Feel free to contact us at BigMeg1 at gmail.com. On the 2084 is or on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages – for all those you want to check out Big Meg One with one written out, and you'll find us. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, Zane Kipmiller, and your friends at the 2008 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd really appreciate it. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and get a ton of excellent rewards, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2080 in the magazine, and even monthly Q&As with Fox from Space Spinner and myself. And then... Eli, folks should come back, I guess, next week or later this week, I guess, if you're listening to it live, to hear our coverage of the 1993 Judge Dredd yearbook, which I did with friend of the show, Dustin. And then um, the week after that, come back here as um, the feuds heat up in Calhab, the plot thickens with Armitage, Judge Hershey gets Mary, and Mechanismo arrives in Mega City One. Ooh, that's going to be exciting. Yeah. And until then, I'm co- – oh, so good? No. Uh, yeah, it is. I have foreknowledge of that. It's going to be pretty good stuff, I predict. A sage Cassandra, a, a non-Anderson Cassandra from the Warnings of the Future. And until then, I'm Conrad, he, he's Eli, and we are Big Meg One. Drock it. Drock it.